Hello and welcome to episode 12 of Matchett and the Other Guy. And Kevin and I are once again sitting outside my home on Lake Wiley. And as ever, Kevin, get us up and running. What are we talking about today? Well, something that uh, we, we've all done and everybody's had a different experience of, of how they did it. But first jobs are always a very interesting topic. Right. Um, and I believe yours, was it the Mazda dealership was your very first one? Or yes. did you have anything prior to that? No, that was it. That was, uh, I started working a little Mazda dealership almost straight out of school, uh, which for me was 16, 17, that, that era. And uh, <clears throat> yes, I did start working. Now, and I, I, it was a great break for me. It was a wonderful experience in terms of my career. Um, because the owner was very keen on the correct training of apprentices and that wasn't that common quite frankly in England back in the 1970s where apprentices in many professions were used as cheap labor uh, and, and it was quite common in the automotive industry that apprentices were taken on merely to do oil changes and never really learned anything of value but my boss, um, Terry Howlett, his name was, Terry, Terry was very keen on training his apprentices from day one to become proper mechanics, to understand how things work and to make components if you needed to make something. If you couldn't buy it, you would make it. And uh, so it was a great break for me. Yeah. How about you? Uh, well, my first one, actually, the, the you know, discounting mowing lawns and such like that, the first one I ever got a paycheck from was actually a short-lived thing, but we lived down in Central Florida, and a friend of mine whose family had a orange packing uh, set up where oh, they yeah. actually had a, a store on the side of the road, but they would pack for shipment in the back. So in the, in the store, they would have, you know, they would sell their citrus fruits, but they also had little citrus candies, jams and jellies. They had a little deli yeah. that make you a sandwich. It was kind of those little roadside. And they were making those jams and jellies, presumably. They probably did. Yeah. I mean, looking okay. back, I'm, I would think they did. But right. they also had, you know, just a number of little, little things in their yeah. shop. But this was coming on Christmas, and they always have a rush at Christmas for, for shipments of, of fresh, you know, oranges and grapefruits and such like that. And the place is called Gray's Orange Barn. And I went to, to school with one of the, the sons, or the son, and um, he just asked me one day, he said, you know, we could use some help at the, the barn kind of getting stuff out for the holidays. Would you be interested? And I'm like, sure, I'll give it a shot. So I uh, went over there. It's kind of on the outskirts of, of the main town we lived in. But uh, it's very interesting. You know, you, you kind of go in the back and they had this, this conveyor belt and the truck would be, I guess, backed up there and you'd hear, ramp, ramp. And all of a sudden, the conveyors would start moving, and down would roll these just tons and tons of oranges. And you had certain ways of packing them in this little mesh bag. Okay. Yeah. And each one had to have a little slip of paper, I think was, was a requirement by the uh, Department of Agriculture. I guess it was a legal okay. thing that had to be. So each bag had to get that. And then you somehow, like, however we did, seal it up at the top and then put it on something that either went down the, the way or set it on a pallet. It's kind of hard to remember. But it was interesting that um, you know, I was the only one that spoke uh, English. Everybody else on the line spoke Spanish. Yeah. Did, but, uh, did that improve your Spanish? No, I wasn't around long enough for really us to converse. <coughs> but everybody was really nice. And we would just, you know, make our, you know, yeah. just essentially talk as best we could. Right. But a lot of it was just, you know, it was kind of noisy and stuff anyway, really working. There wasn't a lot of downtime to visit. But everyone was, was really nice. And it was a, a neat experience. So I did that for two weeks. 
So I consider that my first ever job, and I still have the strip of uh, paper that was attached to the paycheck. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. I w- yes, I, I wish I'd have kept my um, <clears throat> first paycheck. But we used to get paid back in England in the day. Um, it was fairly common that, that all folks that were paid weekly were paid in cash. And we would receive our, our wages. I couldn't call really a salary, but we, we would receive our wages in a little brown envelope. It's like a standard envelope. Almost everyone had the same, same wherever you worked, I think. And um, the the, uh, the the very nice lady from accounts would come round with a little basket every week, and these brown envelopes would be in the basket, and she would come round and hand them out personally. Here you are, Stephen. Here's your wages for this week. And uh, yes, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. I mean, I remember. I remember that first uh, payday very, very well, but I wish I'd have kept the envelope just for, you know, just, just for. Oh, yeah. Know, but didn't. Well, that yeah, nostalgia. Yeah. 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 So what was your, after the orange job, what, what came next for you there? So that was, that was Christmas season of 84, I believe. And then sometime, I guess in early 85, ended up working at Eckerd Drugs. Yes. I don't know if you're familiar with Eckerd. I don't think yeah, they I know the name. anymore. But it's, yeah. a, it's the same as Walgreens or yeah. Rite Aid or okay. CVS. Um, I ended up in the uh, the pharmacy area, uh, kind of the, the, the checkout person at the pharmacy okay. in the back of the, the store. So literally, I had the counter in front of me, and behind me raised up was the... Uh, the pharmacy, the pharmacy, and the pharmacist or pharmacists that were working that day. Yes. And people would come in, hand me their prescriptions. You know, I'd put them up on top, and then they would would fill them. Either you know, they fill them to be picked up then and there, or they'd be picked up later. Yeah. But uh, you know, working back in there, and then I would too stock that area mainly. You know, the the bins would come in, and they'd be full of product to be put up on the shelves, and. And as a teenager, you're not aware of all the medical things that are in the world, right. but you, <laughs> right. it's an eye-opening experience to see products that are used in that section of the store for yeah. various purposes that you had no idea ever existed, and the reason for their existence was even more shocking. So I got kind of an interesting uh, yeah. uh, thrust upon uh, way of finding out that, how things that, worked in a pharmacy. If you can help me with this question, please, please do so. Why is there that raised section in every pharmacist, every pharmacy where the pharmacist is, is packing the, the, the pills into the little bottles? Why? I mean, I ask that because I've heard Jerry Seinfeld talk exactly. about that. Exactly. That's, that's the thing. You know, <laughs> Why I've seen him that? do it in his routine. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's yeah. just the, I guess it was kind of the standard construction at one point. And yeah. Nobody wanted a, to reinvent the wheel. Um, yes. I don't think that. Is something that happens in England. I think it's uh, to, to my to my experience is very much an American. It's an American thing to see that raised platform. Maybe, maybe uh, the big the big chemist chain in England is Boots or was been Boots for you know Boots the chemist seemingly forever. Um, and uh, I don't ever remember that same raised sort of dais idea of being, you know where in those shops. But uh, yeah, quite, quite fascinating. Now the, the the interesting thing for me. You, you mentioned earlier on my first job at Howlett's in Loughborough, the little Mazda dealer, was was Terry Howlett's insistence that I that I work for him. It was, I mean, it was a, it was a wonderful. Thank goodness he was so insistent, and I don't know to this day why he was so insistent. But because I, I mean, I applied. I went to see uh, at school at uh, at high school. We went to see the careers advisor. 
and uh, you know we've something we've chatted about before is you know the idea of anybody from my school going to university was almost a non-starter but we're always going to work in some sort of you know craftsman position whether it's a plumber or a bricklayer or a mechanic or uh, whatever it would be a machinist or something plasterer or or a mechanic we were going to work in that industry and I, I just remember the career advisor saying to me you know what are you interested in and I said well I'm you know I'm really sure what I'm interested in I mean I quite like literature and I quite like books and writing and he said well can't think of anything to do with that um you know have you ever worked on a car and I said well one of my friends has got a car and we've worked on that he said yeah you're you're our guy it's pretty much said you will be a mechanic oh okay and so I filled out the application forms to be an apprentice and uh, through the school and one of those forms was sent off to Howlett's the Mazda dealer and I should have attended an interview uh, at, at, at the Mazda dealer for this position as apprentice but as it happened it was in the summer holidays not long after I'd left school I was away on a camping holiday and uh, when I came, so I missed it, and I didn't really think anything of it. I mean, I was so sort of young and naive that well, I'll apply for another job, I guess. So I missed that opportunity to be to be interviewed. Uh, and and again, as I just mentioned, for reasons I cannot understand, Terry Howlett, who was the owner of Howlett's, went out of his way and drove to our house and said, you know, young Stephen, I, you know, you've applied for this job as an apprentice, and for reasons I cannot understand, you didn't attend the interview. Well. Come down and attend the interview tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. If you, and I was so sort of shocked that this chap, <laughs> this he chap must have known something. <laughs> so yes, dear old Terry Allen, thank you so very much for what you did because I could easily have ended up in any other profession, working anywhere else. But thankfully, I ended up at the right place at the right time with a with a with a chap that really wanted to teach me the trade of being a mechanic and. Uh, well, I, you know, I, it, it worked out okay in the end. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. My, my next one, actually, the next one that I went on to was kind of the one that I kind of defined, you know, when I was working in, in high school. Not that it led to, you know, career down the line, but, right. uh, you know, TCBY, yogurt shops. Yes. The next one was that. That was later that, that in 85. So I was in my, had started, you know, my junior year of high school. Okay. And they were opening one in our, our town. And I went and applied you know, well before they even opened and they went ahead and hired me on. And so I remember I was digging out what became the flower bed. I was digging with a pickaxe. Oh, wow. <laughs> helping them kind of get the place going. <laughs> so, which was kind of good because you're kind of there yeah. at the beginning. You're, 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 you're there for, you know, like creation. So, and uh, it was just, it was a great high school job because, you know, 10, you know, the American thing was that most kids get a job in fast food, you know, yeah. working at a burger joint or whatever, but, right. you know, McDonald's, Burger King or something, which can be greasy and hot and all that sure. kind of stuff. And it was kind of refreshing to work in a yogurt shop, you know, with essentially, you know. With a pickaxe. Starting with a pickaxe, yeah. <laughs> but once we got yeah. the building up and we were inside, it was it was quite nice and everything was always, you know, quite, uh, you know, sterile to, to the ninth degree or tenth degree, I guess you'd say. Yes. Um, that you know everything was always kept perfectly clean and 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 just a nice it was a nice place to be i sometimes just get away from everything else i had to do and relax when i got to work so yeah so i mean it's it stands all of us i think in good stead that we are prepared to be versatile and try different things because i imagine you know if you 
if your boss at the time said, well, come and work for me in this yogurt shop, but the first thing you're going to be doing is, with a pickaxe, building the building the flower bed outside, there would be folks who would say, that's not for me, I don't understand any of that, not getting involved in that. But I think it's, it, it stands us all in good stead to try different things, be prepared to be versatile and do whatever's necessary. Yeah, I, mean, I very much, uh, like I say, enjoyed the experience. And, yeah, you, know, you got to see, I got to work with, you know, people, you know, I went to school with some, but met some new ones. And, yeah. then, you know, I still remember, I just loved the clientele we had. You know, I still remember some of them to this day. We, we were a very unique TCBY in that uh, we had a drive-through. Okay. Most of them were in little strip malls or, or whatever, or, you know, inside inside the mall or whatever, I guess. Um, but ours was an old SunBank uh, small teller building. Okay. So we already right. had the drive-through lanes built. Sure. So all we did was fill in the ones not closest to the uh, the window, and made those a patio, and then left that drive-through lane. So we didn't have a speaker box or anything like that. But you would just pull up to the window, and order off a little menu we had out there. But people generally knew what we had anyway. And there was this one couple that it got to the point where I would see them out the front window on the road with their left blinker on, and I would go ahead and make make their treats and i had them sitting on the windowsill when they got there because i knew oh i can tell you to this day he ordered the large chocolate yogurt with pecans on it and she ordered the medium chocolate with carob chips were kind of like a healthy chocolate chip okay i still remember (laughs) this has been 35 years and i still remember their order yeah but uh you know they would and there was the sweetest people and they would they would come up and i'd bring them right up and i remember one time they came through and it was just after we closed and already zed out the register and everything was kind of closing and such like that so when they got there, I just swung open the door and said, hey, we're already closed for the night. They're on the house. <laughs> Handed it to them and said, I'll see you next That's time. That's beautiful. Well so, done. And they were, they were so nice. I, I even invited them to my high school graduation. Did you Yeah, really? I gave them an invite. <laughs> I don't think they made it, but still. But, yeah, but we had a lot of people that you know were regulars that you yeah. got to know and stuff and like I, that. I, I bet you saw quite a cross-section of the community at your yogurt shop. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 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 And when we first opened, it was kind of a big deal. We were in a fairly small town. And I tell you, Sunday nights after Sunday church service the line would be out the door and down the sidewalk is that first open yeah yeah so it was a new thing in town so yes so it's the country's best yogurt is that is it tc yes yeah which is it's people hearing it today probably think of what it is now it's the kind of where you go up and you you pour a certain amount and you take it and they weigh it and they charge you by ounce right it wasn't like that back then you just bought you bought like a small or medium or a large and or if you wanted a topping or we had a you know, milkshakes, or well, not milkshakes, obviously, they're yogurt, but uh, smoothies, you yeah. know, we make with the yogurt and, and stuff like that. Now, you obviously grew up surrounded by yogurt, yogurt, but I can, I you know, as a kid growing up in England, I can tell you, yogurt was almost un, unheard of in my, in my childhood, and it was considered something extremely exotic. No, really? Extremely exotic to have yogurt, yeah. Yes, and uh, we used to have also something that started to come on board later on. Now, I'm going to guess mid-70s to late-70s, it was like a yogurt drink, and they were sold in yogurt pots, but they were like in a champagne flute-sized yogurt yeah. pot with a little lid on the top. Yeah, yeah drinkable yeah. yogurt. Yeah, I never, I, it was years and years before I you know, noticed that you know, there were the drinkable yogurts. Growing up, even, even when I was little, way before... TCB Wire even moving to Florida, we always had like the yogurts that were like Yoplait, you know, the kind of soft kind of yes with fruit in them. But you also had <laughs> the kind that was like a little stiffer, 
almost not like, like gelatin, but almost you know, like a, a Greek yogurt, sort of. Well, it's stiffer than that. Oh wow! And, yeah, then, okay. and we had those two kinds. I liked either one. Yeah. But and then they had the kind with the fruit on the bottom that was always just plain yogurt on top, and the fruit was on the bottom, and you'd reach down and yes, whip it around and get it all mixed together. Yes. Oh, I know. I, yeah. I ate those when I was you know less than ten. Problem problem for me again, and it's something that we've talked about before. Is I haven't really got a sweet tooth, and I do seem to think that a lot of the yogurts that were sold in England were particularly sweet, but if you could just get a plain Greek type yogurt that wasn't sweet, I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just wasn't particularly common. Well, essentially, I mean, the ones we had at our shop, you know, it tasted like, you know, soft serve ice cream. Right. Yeah. Yes. And we always had, always one machine every day was chocolate and vanilla, and then the other one would switch around. Oh, like really? It, it may be strawberry and uh, pina colada, or it'd be banana and peach or yeah. whatever, and you could get. Anything that was in that machine, you could get swirled, just like you could get the chocolate and vanilla swirled. So there was six really different options you could pour yeah, wow. out of it on a given given day. So did that did that change every day? Like was every Monday strawberry day or every Tuesday? Essentially, was- it was. I still yeah. remember every Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was great. always strawberry and pina colada in the in the other machine. Yeah. It seems like Friday was banana and peach or something like that. But they, it kind of got where it was in a regular, kind of regular rotation. Yes. So where did you go from there? So that was, that was so you've worked in the, the orange store or the, or the orange truck, uh, the, the farm shop there, and then you've worked in uh, TCBY. What, well, what yeah, was the we, next had, we had Eckerd in between. Oh, we, I we could, that's right. Yeah, 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 the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they worked and in the drugstore. Actually, I, la- I, I really loved TCBY, and really it got to be, it was, it was, into the last semester of my senior year in high school. Yeah. And I kind of just left, you know, of course on very good terms, but I said, you know, I'm going to enjoy these last few weeks of high school. Right. I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> retire from the yogurt game. <laughs> but I tell you, it was actually kind of funny because the uh, the owner of the business actually offered, you know, me a, a regional management position oh, wow. afterwards. But I was like, I, I, no, I'm, I'm going to college. I can't do that. But thank you. But uh, but That's I very good of him. I know. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, if he say if you want to stay with the company or whatever, but I said I'm, I'm, I got to do college. But uh, so I, I I left a few weeks ahead of uh, school ending, so I could enjoy those last few weeks. We always had you know the ceremonies and the party, you know the stuff you do to wrap up high school. Right. So and then when I you know I had the summer um, and where I did, actually did some early college classes, but pretty much into that first semester actually there were quarters back then at, at university of tennessee and now their semesters in fact changed while i was there um I, I wanted to do something while i was uh working or something to work at while i was at school and i i uh, got a job at chesapeake's restaurant in knoxville okay and it was it, chesapeake's is the finest seafood restaurant in knoxville ironically i'm not a big seafood fan but uh, i got a job there that semester or quarter and what were you, what was your role there? What were you doing? Actually, I was they, I was a busser, so I wasn't a waiter, but I would you know go around and pick up uh, plates as people finished their their dinners yeah. or finished their appetizer or whatever, um, and then he always kind of helped clean and, and stuff like that. And I really liked it because it was very flexible. The waiters and wait staff they were required to also work lunches. If they were going to work evenings, they had to work lunches because they couldn't just take the, the cream and not do the, the harder stuff, which uh, might not be as fruitful. Okay, okay. Um, so as a buster, I didn't have to do that because they didn't need that much at lunch. So my mine was much more flexible. But on the other side of that, too, was the waitresses and waiters were uh, required to give me a percentage of their tips because I helped them through the whole evening. Sure. So really, I came out sometimes in the evening better ahead than somebody that might have had a slow night because I'm pooling from everyone that worked 
that night kind of based on what they made. Yes, yeah. And was that done, was that all done at the discretion of the individual servers, or did management get involved with that? There was supposed to be a certain percentage they yeah. were supposed to, to give me. Um, and he would actually, because he could tell you know how much they reported, and he would kind of make a little chart. And if somebody definitely was short, I had full uh, reasoning and, and backup to go talk to him and go, oh, you're kind of short a little bit here. Um, so, but I tell you, and then some nights they were just, you know, made gangbusters and they were like, you know, or if I did a lot with them that, that night, you know, they were just, you know, give me a good bit extra. That's great. Yeah. So, but it was a good, good college job. And again, very flexible for me to do things I needed to get done and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I would have loved to have gone to college. I really would. I think I would have enjoyed it very much. And, and because of, um, when I was working with Banaton, Banaton was 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 located uh, in Whitney, Oxfordshire, and then at Enston, Oxfordshire, both within a very short drive of Oxford itself. And I've always had a soft spot for Oxford, and just I love the architecture of Oxford, and love walking around the old college buildings there. You know, and the idea that. Um, some of those college buildings have been a working college building for a thousand years is just staggering to me, oh, yeah. you know. Um, but something that we've chatted about before, though I don't think we've chatted about down here at, at the lake, is, you know, the, 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 the standard education, the comprehensive education that I and my um, schoolmates all went through in the 1960s and 1970s in England, I mean, it was absolutely geared towards you will become, as we've just mentioned before, you know, you will work in the trade, in the trades at some, doing something. Again, you would be a bricklayer or a plasterer or a plumber or a mechanic or a fitter or whatever it would be. But the idea of going to college, to, to me, was just, it was something that just happened to other people. I mean, we were never even exposed to it. You know, and I would love to have gone and studied, you know, English literature and uh, had a great... My English teachers and I really got on well, and my English teacher was the first uh, person to introduce me to Orwell with 1984, and I was still relatively young, 13, 14, when uh, she said to me, you know, you should read Orwell 1984, I think, you'll, I think you'll like it, and I just fell in love with it. I mean, just Orwell's writing is wonderful, and this idea of this incredible dystopia of of um, Airstrip One and the characters that in 1984 have just st stuck with me to this day. But nobody, nobody <laughs> ever said throughout all of my education, you know, if you apply yourself well to literature and reading, you know, and, and there's no reason why you shouldn't apply to go to university. It was simply not going to happen. It was very, it was, it was extraordinary. But thinking about, and I'm not sort of bitter about it now because I've had a... <laughs> Everything's worked out fine. Life, life just unfolds, whether you want it to or not. It just unfolds in front of you, and I've had a great, great fun time to this point in my life. But uh, when I think about about it now, why that should be, and now university in England is a lot more open to so many people, more people than ever it was uh, back in my day. I can only assume that it was because England, Great Britain, if you like. But I mean, I. You know, can only really talk about my time in England. England was still getting over the Second World War. I mean, it absolutely. I mean, the First World War wrecked the, wrecked Europe and wrecked Britain, and then twenty years later, we were plunged into another terrible catastrophe, which lasted five six years. 
So England, after 1945, when the Second World War came to an end, I mean, it, it took a long, long, long while for England to get back on its feet. And even into the 50s and 60s, and into the 70s, England were looking for folks that could actually use their hands and do stuff, yeah. rebuild the country. And I am absolutely convinced to this day that that's why comprehensive education in England was all pushed towards getting folks uh, to become apprentices of one form or another. Yeah, it yes. seems like there was a, quite, a, quite a stretch between the two. Like, you're, you're either going to be a scholar or you're going to... Yes, I mean... There's not a lot of crossover or kind of in the middle. No, and and the odd thing is, of course, something we've spoken to in other conversations about childhood, even when, you know, the conversation we have down here at the lake, when, you know, you're, what the, the exposure that you have to the world as a child, you're not really... You have nothing else to base the world on, right? Because it's the first time these things are happening yep. to you. And uh, I just find it extraordinary that... Uh, Nobody talked about going to college. Nobody talked about going to university. And I can count on the, you know, the fingers of one hand. Out of all, you know, literally, seemingly hundreds of folks I was at school with, I can count on the fingers of one hand the folks that I know that actually ended up going to college. Hardly anybody. But you're absolutely right. I mean, certain folks were destined for you know, a career in academia. And would go to college and university, and off they went. And uh, the rest, of, <laughs> the rest of us were going to be working with our hands. And so it was, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, and let's say you're, I, if I got your chronological right, you went from the Mazda dealer to the BMW dealership. I went the other way around. I, I, I worked at, uh, I worked at to the Mazda dealer, and then I worked uh, at Ferrari. Okay, you did Ferrari before. Yes, BMW. I did okay, Ferrari. That's right, that's right. And then I wanted to. Ferrari were wonderful. Wonderful in terms of their mechanical engineering. I mean, great sort of mechanical marvels. Sometimes it's you know, quite a mis- mystery how they work in the first place. But they, you know, when they when they are working, they're wonderful machines. But I always felt that um, the electronics of Ferrari let the side down relative to what the German manufacturers were doing. And so when I wanted to make that move into Formula One, I, I it was a Believe me, it was a it was a heart wrenching decision. But I decided to leave Ferrari and go into work for BMW because of their better electronics. I wanted to be better trained on electronics because I was trying to do again. I was self taught in everything I was doing in a way, so I was trying to sort of learn as much as I could, um, as fast as possible, trying to get into Formula One. And so I had a good base of mechanical engineering, and I wanted to learn the latest state of the art in electronics. And at the time, I think BMW led the field. So I, I went to work for a BMW dealership. And from there, I worked for BMW for precisely a year. It was like 365 days to the day. Wow. And then um, uh, I was accepted uh, um, to work with Nigel Stepney at, at Benetton. So moved down to Oxford for that job. So yeah, so that was that was it really. And I can remember, I can remember leaving because my dad died relatively early. Dad died when when I was um, 17, 18, 1982, and uh, actually when he died. And um, so I was the breadwinner for the family. I was looking after mum, 
And uh, mum was always very supportive of everything I was doing. And, 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 I, and I said to mum at one point, you know, mum, I'd really love to go and work in Formula One, but it's going to leave me, me and I'm going to have to leave home. I'm going to have to leave you. Um, you're going to be okay in all of these things that are worrying, you know, worries everybody. And she said, look, absolutely, I'll be fine. Just go and do what you want to do. Life's too short. <laughs> you can't stay here. Go and explore the world and have fun. If you can work in Formula One, that'd be wonderful. So I can remember I, I went down for the interview at Benetton and um, uh, Nigel Ste- Stepney gave me the job and um, he asked me to start. Um, I think it was I think it was January 1990. Yes, it's early. It was just after Christmas and the New Year, so it's just into uh, the start of 1990. And I can remember leaving home, packing all my things into a little Ford Escort which I had, and I rented a house, uh, an apartment, a flat down in. Um, down in Woodstock near Blenheim Palace uh, in Oxfordshire, uh, which was a stone's throw again away from where, from where the Benetton factory was based. And I remember driving down through the country roads down toward Oxfordshire with all my worldly possessions and this old Escort car. And I had so much stuff packed into the car that the rear of the car was weighed right down. And I had a much better view of the starry sky than ever I did of the road ahead. But I did manage to get down there safe and sound. Yeah, so that was a great sort of watershed moment for me. It was the leaving home moment and also the starting, the starting work in Formula One all in one, all in one session, really. Yeah. yeah. Well, you yeah. worked with, you know, straight on with cars for many, many, many years. It worked out all right. And again, you know, I, I wish I had the ability and the chance to progress towards going to university, but that, that simply wasn't going to happen. But that, that aside, um, I can't complain about my career. I've had a wonderful time. I had 10 years in, I've worked for the Ferrari road car division. Um, you know, I worked, I worked as a Formula One mechanic for 10 years and was part of a team that won three Formula One World Championships. You know, I've written a, 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 I've written now four books and, and the second of which continues to be Formula One's best-selling title ever. Uh, that led me into working for uh, with Speed Vision and, and Fox TV in the States for 20 years and then, and then, and then my five years with NBC. So everything's all work. Every, like we just said before, Kevin, you know, like life will unfold, whether you yes. want it to or not. Even if they, you have those times, we all have those times in our life where we go through bad times and good times and you're not sure what the future's going to hold and times of stress and anxiety and worry we all we all go through those times and if anything that sustained me in the few times that i've been really sort of low is that knowledge that tomorrow morning the sun will rise again the sun will come up and you will be faced with tomorrow and and, you have another chance Yes, you have no, in a way, you have no choice. Life just will continue to unfold in front of you one day at a time. Yeah. Well, I've always liked the, the statement, uh, you know, today is the first day of the rest of your life. It's very It's true, a starting it? point if you look at it that way. You know, nothing else has unfolded ahead yet. Yes. Make it happen. And there's been a couple of times in my life when I've been financially broke, like t- twice, almost reduced to nothing. Um but you will always, you know, that just means that you have to be more frugal with what you're doing with money. And if you can't afford to buy something, you don't 
buy it you know I mean that's something that my my parents most especially my mother taught me from an early age look if you haven't got the money to buy ABC you're not going to buy it just wait until my, you my do my dad said the exact same thing just wait until you do yeah and you may not have the money to go to the restaurant of your choice but you may be able to go to the fresh market or you go to one of the supermarkets at close to closing and been able to find those bargains and you may be able to buy vegetables that you're going to bake a soup or a stew with and that's going to get you through that day and then it's the next day and the sun rises again yep yeah. Well, something I've learned too is you know what you set out with, and, and maybe you know those you know when you go to college or something like that, you'll pick a major or something like that. Right. And the career you end up with may have nothing totally hardly at all related to what you <laughs> study. I do see or the that direction you the thought you were going to go in. Yeah. I see that a lot with you know by this age, I'm not doing anything yes. really related to what I you know studied or, and I see that in my friends too. A lot of them you know just opportunities came about, and now they're doing something totally different and. Uh, Hopefully they love it. Many of them do. Yes. Well, that's right. Because it's impossible to say that life will always follow the course that you expect it to follow when you leave school or leave college. It doesn't, life just doesn't unfold like that. It doesn't unfold in the way that you expect it to. It just unfolds and it might turn to the left or it might turn to the right or, you know, you might suddenly encounter a crossroads and you don't know which way to go, but you're going to choose one route and that will be the route you follow, whether it's the right choice, the wrong choice, but the, the road will unfold, the next day will unfold ahead of you. Well, and too, quite, quite often you'll find and you'll, you'll look back and you'll go, and it's all because I spoke to someone yeah. at this event who knew someone or something like that. It may come down literally to just one interaction right. that sends your career trajectory that somebody noticed and took you on a journey in a different path. I am a, I am a big believer in exactly what you say there. I, I, I feel that throughout our lives we are destined to meet four or possibly five people at different stages of our life that will teach us something, show us something, direct us to something else that will change our lives. I think that's just the way it is. We're destined to meet A, B, C, D, E along the way. Um, and that will change our lives. And for me, we've talked about Terry Howlett. Terry Howlett was definitely one of those people that if I hadn't have met him, if he hadn't have took me under his wing, my life would have been completely different. Better sure. or worse, who knows, but exactly. it would have been different. And when I started, uh, when I was applying for work within Formula One, Nigel Stepney, who was the chief mechanic at Benetton, was another one of those folks that I was, I feel, destined to meet. Because again, he took me under his wing and gave me the possibility that he didn't need to take me on, because I had no Formula One experience at all. But he saw whatever it was in me, you know, that desire, the, the, the push to learn to be better than I am now, to be better tomorrow. He saw something in me and gave me that opportunity. And so there was number two. Mm -hmm. And then when I started to write, um, the, the first book I wrote was Life in the Fast Lane when I was still working at Benetton. And I approached Weidenfeld and Nicholson who are a big publishing house in London, mainstream publishers, part of the Orion Publishing Group. And once again, I met a chap called there, the publisher there, the editor I was working with was Michael Dover. And Michael Dover, once again, saw something in what I was writing. He, he I mean, he had no 
he didn't need to give me that opportunity to publish my book. He did not need to do that. But yet we had many conversations. He took me under his wing, showed me the editing process and said, we can do this, Steve. I think your book is well worth publishing. It's worth my time and effort to get involved with you. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have had my first book published. And then the next guy that I met that I think I was, again, ordained to meet, like preordained to meet, if you like, it was bound to happen was Frank Wilson from Speed Vision, who gave me the opportunity to work in, in American television. So, and if it wasn't for all of those people seeing something see, and, and, and encouraging something within me in my particular case, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation down at the lake now. You know, exactly. my life would have just unfolded a different way. And, I, and I'm sure if I now ask you, you know, four or five people you've met, I'm not suggesting you need to or want to share those stories with me but there are five four or five folks that we all meet in life that pushes in different directions yeah and, and just turning points and, and yes you know, yeah speaking with that person and why and and which direction it sent you in it's extraordinary isn't it how, how that happens but um li life is <laughs> life is a wonderful thing it is a wonderful thing it's to be enjoyed and to experience something of the world. It's a, this is a theme that we often come back to in our conversations down at the lake here, that uh, it's a great, it's a wonderful thing that we have. We just have to make best use of it. And again, I, you know, going back full circle, I, I kind of, I wish I'd have had the opportunity or the encouragement to go to university, but if I had done that, I don't think we would be having this conversation by the lake. I don't. No, you're probably right. I, You'd probably be doing something totally would different. Be doing something totally. Which you may enjoy, but still. Yes, it's nonetheless right. different. <laughs> that's right. I can't say that I really enjoyed all those endless all-nighters in Formula One when you're absolutely exhausted and you know so tired you can hardly stand. But when you look back on them, you've never forgotten them. You've never forgotten. They are remarkable experiences. Yeah. Well. I think we should think about wrapping up this little conversation. I think we can. That was a great fun topic, and I appreciate you very much bringing that up. And you always seem to uh, pick topics of conversation which spark memories that, in my particular case, seem sort of long buried, and I can hardly remember these things well, until we get into a conversation. They well, I, th I think again. we tend to be nostalgic, but I think we enjoy <laughs> it, and hopefully you as the listener enjoys it as well. I hope so. And on that note, gentle listener, thanks for joining us, and do please join us again on the next episode of Matchett and the Other Guy. Bye for now. Bye.